So I've had the pleasure of um, many, many years practicing mindfulness and then being intimately involved in the exploration of mindfulness as it becomes a larger part of our culture and turns into a movement in the West. And so because of that, I thought that I was in a unique position to talk about what I'm going to call the 12 myths of the mindfulness movement. (laughs) Keep in mind, I just made it up. (laughs) Okay? And this is something to understand when you're cultivating, when you're developing curriculum, for instance. You just make it up. And then you try it out, see if it lands, see what happens, and then if it works, you keep going with it. And before you know it, everybody's going to be saying, the 12 myths of mindfulness, right? (laughs) They're this. Okay. So number one, uh, sorry, I'm going to start backwards, just like uh, like David Letterman or something. (laughs) Okay. So number 12. Okay, I'm starting with number 12. Science irrevocably, undeniably proves that mindfulness is effective. All right, I think we learned enough last night with Cliff, where Cliff helped us to see how, the, um, how science is so young, how it's still in an exploration phase, how the science of mindfulness, how the science of mindfulness has not been replicated a lot, some of the studies, that they haven't done longitudinal studies enough, that they haven't done effective control groups, all of these things that we know are important for really good research. What he didn't say is that there's probably about 1,500, maybe not that many, but close to that, 1,500 studies in mindfulness currently existing which is amazing if you think about it, because 10 years ago there were maybe 70 studies, and then it went up to 700, and then it's close to doubled at this point, which is extraordinary. However, if you were to look up how many studies there are about, uh, about heart disease and exercise, you would find 43,000 studies. Okay, So mindfulness research is in its infancy, It's wonderful, it's exciting. Because of mindfulness research, the movement and the field is moving along in the way it is. Because of mindfulness research, we're getting uh, mindfulness into schools and hospitals, and it's fantastic. And um, it's still in the early phase. We already knew this, right? My colleague at UCLA, Marv Belser, he said something interesting. He said, Even if somebody proved that mindfulness was terrible for your health, that it led to more anxiety, that it led to lack of attention and changed your brain for the worse, he said, even if that were the case, I'd still do it. And I think that's something to really consider because the science can be quite motivating and exciting, but for those of us who practice, we know that it's good. We don't need science to tell us that. And at the same time, we can skillfully use scientists, science, the science of mindfulness, as facilitators in a way that can really help move things along, as I said. So just to give a few, a few guidelines about thinking about it, the first is not overselling it. 
not telling everyone science, the science of mindfulness has proven this. It's absolutely 100% sure your anxiety will go away if you practice. It's useful um, that, that you, what you can also do is find out your relationship to the science. So some of you will be really, is, are really interested in that, and some of you are scientists and researchers. And so you'll find your relationship. And some of you don't even you know, have no relationship. I failed neuroscience in college, just so you know. Now I work at the Semmel Institute for Neuroscience <laughs> and Human... Oh, I just forgot the name. <laughs> anyway, neuroscience. <laughs> so, um, so what we see is that um, you have to find your relationship. So you will, and you'll, and it can be helpful to learn a few studies that you find to be supportive, and then you can talk about them when you teach. And it's nice to interweave them through your teach through your teaching. And so, just a, just an encouragement to use science, but use it wisely, and don't be afraid. If you're afraid of it. It's fine. You don't have to use it. You do not have to teach mindfulness in this kind of secular context by, by teaching about the science. You don't have to. Go to where you feel comfortable. Really important. Okay, so that was number 12, just touching on it since, <laughs> since um, we, de- we dealt with it last night. Number 11 of the, the, number, the next myth of mindfulness movement, number 11 is... John Kabat-Zinn invented mindfulness in 1979. <laughs> um, that one speaks for itself. That is not true. However, I believe there are people who believe this, it, that, it, that it just appeared out of thin air, and um, he invented it, or some other people invented it. But of course we know it's linked to a 2,500-year-old tradition. And so... Just to remind you of that one. Also keep in mind that MBSR is not the only mindfulness out there. We're so lucky to have Bob here with us because he's one of the people who's been doing the groundbreaking work of uh, teaching MBSR in so many contexts over these years and training people. And what's happened in the last number of years is mindfulness has begun to flourish in all sorts of ways. And so people are are in a very creative bottom-up, grassroots way, developing mindfulness programs and bringing it into schools and hospitals and, and therapy and businesses. And you all are part of that movement. And so some of you, many of you here are doing MBSR, but there's also many other things. So just to know that the field is huge and getting bigger by the day. And this leads to problems too, which I'll talk about as we get to it in a bit. Myth number 10. Mindfulness is for everyone. Do you think it's for everyone? Yeah, it's, it, it really isn't. I mean, nothing is for everyone, right? I guess food is for everyone or death is for everyone. I mean, there are some things that are for everyone. But in terms of uh, practices and philosophies and things like that, it, there, nothing is for everyone. And, um, and it's really important to not assume that mindfulness is everybody's cup of tea. And that mindfulness is going to reach every single institution in, the, in this culture or that you're going to make every student happy. You're not. There will be people who sit in the class and just not interested. Doesn't affect them. Doesn't impact them. Don't like it. People who already have a profound kind of mindfulness experience and don't want more techniques and tools. There's, and there's many... I, I'm really big on letting people 
self-select and go with it if, it if it appeals to them and not trying to push it and not trying to proselytize. I just, this popped into my head. I was thinking about um, in, in India, there were um, the untouchables were the, one of the strategies for dealing with the untouchables uh, for helping legitimize the untouchable, the lives of the untouchables was to bring in um, a different religion. So if they move them out of Hinduism, maybe they wouldn't be the lowest caste. So they started, you know, asking around, what should we do? And of course they got infl- like flooded with the Christians saying, oh, convert, because there were millions of people who were going to convert to a new religion. Millions of people. And so... Um, so the Christians and Jewish and Muslim and everybody was trying to get um, Ambedkar, the guy who was the head of the movement, to, to convert. And he gets one little letter from a Buddhist guy that says, that would be nice. Buddhism would be nice. That's it. And that's what he chose. <laughs> and I, only, I, just, I was just thinking of that right now only because that, that, like, I'm not a big fan of proselytizing. I'm a big fan of what in the suttas, in the Buddhist suttas, talk about come and see for yourself. And for those of you who are familiar with the Kalama Sutta, the Kalama Sutta reminds us that we shouldn't believe whatever we, we shouldn't believe what we hear about just because people say it's the best practice. And we shouldn't believe in traditions merely because they're old and they've been handed down for generation after generation. And we shouldn't believe things on account of rumor or because they've written testimony about it. And all the reasons why you might believe or have heard that mindfulness is good. And what the Buddha said about how to understand, how to distinguish what is, what is um, wise, And what is helpful to you is this. After thorough investigation and reflection, you find to agree with reason and experience as conducive to the good and benefit of one and all and the world at large. Accept only that as true and shape your life in accordance with it. So I take that teaching that's been a very important practice in my own life and I take it very seriously when I teach. I always say, try it. Practice it. See what happens. If it helps your life, go with it. If it doesn't, don't worry about it. Go do something else. Go surfing. Have a good day. (laughs) Seriously. So anyway, that was mindfulness number 10. Mindfulness is for everyone. It's connected to number 9, myth number 9. Mindfulness is a panacea. There's, I've noticed that as mindfulness goes into the public, it starts to become this thing that's going to solve everybody's problem. And I've especially seen it happening in the mindfulness and education movement. So suddenly, this is the new thing that's going to solve the crisis in our nation's schools. Mindfulness. Is it going to? It's a myth. (laughs) I mean, I, I think it's way more complicated than that. However, mindfulness is a wonderful tool that can be taught to kids in schools and actually change institutions, change... And I think in terms of education teaching the kids, teaching the teachers, teaching the administration, teaching the parents. And it's not about just dropping a little program in, teaching the, the kids in the school and leaving. It's about, it's about a full institutional change that needs to happen. But mindfulness is not just about... Um, it, not, mindfulness is not the cure-all for anxiety. The research shows that it works as well as medication. 
you can have your pick. You can do medication or you can do meditation. It's up to you. But, um, but we, get, we can get really excited about mindfulness and think it's going to solve all our problems. And it's just, that's a myth. Okay. Number eight. Mindfulness will not be distorted as it moves out into the culture. Of course it will. Of course, how could this culture not distort everything <laughs> that comes in front? Of, it does. And that's, you know, when Cliff last night was talking about that Bloomberg article that said, to make a killing on Wall Street, start meditating. Oh, it's heartbreaking, right? So that will happen. Um, a few years ago, I was interviewed by Women's Health magazine. So it's a very, very mainstream magazine. They have women's health, men's health. And I was asked about mindfulness. And the article was, uh, was a pretty good article, actually. It wasn't bad at all. This actually was last year. And, but what happens is the editors then make some decisions. So one of the things the editor did was created this pull quote from it. So it was the big, the big thing about it. And it said... Um, Practicing mindfulness can increase your pain tolerance and help shrink your belly fat. <laughs> Does that work? Come on, I want to know. <laughs> um, so this is going to happen, right? There will be distortions. There will be people who are untrained, people who take a weekend workshop and decide that they can be mindfulness facilitators. There will be mindfulness used in all sorts of strange ways and talked about incorrectly and um, confusing people and watered down. And just, of course, that's going to happen. And... Um, our job is to stand as people with integrity and practice and bring that to whatever we do because I think that that's what's going to shine. When all the junk is out there, there's going to be the people who are really serious and that's going to shine. Okay. Myth number seven. Practicing mindfulness can increase your pain tolerance and help shrink your belly fat. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay. That was number seven. <clears throat> number six. The mindfulness movement is ahistorical. It's unaligned with what's happened throughout Buddhist history. This is not true at all, and I want to share a little bit about it because I think it's very relevant to what we're doing here because sometimes people will say, oh, you just are... People like like Mark and Bob and I and others, you're just doing this whole new thing with, with um, Buddhism. You're turning it into a mindfulness and it has no connection to its history. It's not what's done. So w there's been some interesting uh, scholarly research around this. And there is a, there's a man, a scholar named Eric Braun, who looked at the history of mindfulness in Burma. And what he said was that for many, many years, people were not really meditating. The monks were not meditating. That if you look at what was happening in the monasteries, there was a lot of, of um, ceremonial practice. There were some individuals out there doing meditation, but Buddhism, in the way we think of it as such a live tradition of meditation, was actually not, not what was happening in that country for hundreds and hundreds of years. So he takes this one date. The date is November 28, 1885, when everything changed. Why did it change? 
the British Imperial Army conquered Burma. Then what happened? Well, in the Buddhist in the Buddhist lore, basically, the idea is that someday Buddhism is going to die out. It's supposed to last maybe 5,000 years, but the only way to protect it is to have the king be, um, be, a, be a big advocate for it. Okay, this is according to their, their lore, right? So what happened is the British invade. Queen Victoria is now the head of, Britain, of, of Burma, and she puts out, she was actually kind of, uh, it wasn't too bad, but she basically said, let people practice their religion. But she did nothing to protect it. And that suddenly catalyzed the nation. And they said, we have to protect the sasana. The sasana it means the, the, essentially Buddhism. We have to protect it. And so suddenly there was this whole movement arising of people taking mindfulness out of the realm of very secret, very specialized, and bringing it into the lay world. And what you see were, um, here, well, I'll read this. In the lively political and social landscape of the early 20th century Burma, meditation became another means to protect Buddhism. Meditative attainments at the individual length strengthened the entire sasana, the religion, by improving society's karma. At the, t- at the same time, awakening, previously considered unattainable in such a degenerate area, era, came to be regarded as possibly in one's current, as, sorry, came to be regarded as a possibility in one's current life through the path of meditation. Key figure, figures harnessed the volatile energy of lay people's worry, empowerment, and knowledge, all sparked and shaped by colonial policy and missionary attacks to drive the population towards practice. Do you understand what I'm saying? Be in response to colonialism and invasion of their country, practice became democratized. And the next thing you know, these monks were teaching the lay people how to practice, and that had never been done before. And what you see is that um, there was a, one particular monk named Lady Sayada, L-E-D-I, Lady Sayada, who began to teach it to the public. And he would start teaching, they began to teach not only to men and monks, but also to women. They began to teach that daily life practice was possible. They began to teach that one could, uh, that one doesn't have to have deep, concentrated jhana states of mind, but could actually just have a basic concentration in which you could um, then, um, that's sufficient enough to attain different levels of awakening. So it was a total revolution of what had been done before. And then, uh, and then a colleague of his was someone named Mingun Sayadaw, who was influenced by him, who influenced Mahasi Sayadaw. And Mahasi Sayadaw influenced our teachers, Joseph Goldstein, Jack Cornfield, Sharon Salzberg, who are known as the reverse messengers, people who went over there and brought it here. And here we have practice for lay people today. And one could argue then that what we're doing here with taking mindfulness out into the culture is simply the next, another step in the stream of democratizing, popularizing, and helping people through, through mindfulness practices. So I just thought I'd give a little history lesson because um, I just find it so interesting. And it, it, it's validating for the sense of, oh no, we're, some people argue, as I said, mindfulness is something really new, you know, that we shouldn't 
we shouldn't be doing it in this way. Okay. Number five, and I'm going to dig in here to this one. And this one is the myth that the issue of diversity is not relevant to mindfulness. So I'm going to argue now that it is, that, if, that it's very, very important. That mindfulness in these, is, is the mindfulness movement, or we can call it secular mindfulness, which is not a great, great name for it. In fact, Bob was saying how much he hates that label, secular mindfulness, because it impl- implies that it's not sacred what we're doing here. And it is sacred what we're doing here. So the word secular is not so helpful, but it's sort of what people tend to use. But it's about accessibility on all levels. It's about accessibility and an invitation in and making mindfulness available to whoever wants access. And so it is, the issues of diversity are so relevant because mindfulness can be, and in my opinion, should be accessible to people of all backgrounds and classes and races and genders and sexualities and ages and disabilities. And why? Because separation and exclusion is one of the greatest sufferings there is on, a, on an individual level, on a relational level, and on um, collective and world level, Right? one of the ways we suffer. And of course, as we know, racism is one of the greatest sufferings that the United States is dealing with right now and has been for its entire legacy, right? So what we see that because the mindfulness movement arose out of the Western Buddhist convert sanghas is that it can carry the same flavor. In other words, primarily, primarily white, primarily older, primarily middle to upper middle class. I think most of you know that sometimes this tradition is called the, um, the upper middle way, right? <laughs> um, but for mindfulness to grow and truly impact the culture and the world, it needs to move into a vast array of populations and actually mimic the distribution of the way populations are that um, that it's got to go into right in my opinion it, it it doesn't have to be brought which is is very colonialist but what it what is the the availability to anybody who wants it no matter what their backgrounds and this is really really important in my view and I think that it'll actually I think that actually it'll be quite a failure if five to ten years from now the mindfulness movement is just seen as another white, middle-aged phenomenon, you know, associated with certain class background. So partially, I think it's important to, um, to support facilitators from all backgrounds, really important. And so, for instance, just an example, something that we do in the training that I have at UCLA is one of my TAs, who's very central in the role, is from Mexico. So that allows us to bring lots of Spanish-speaking people into our, into our um, program. And so we have many people from all over Latin America and the U.S., and that just, it just pr- provides another level of accessibility. 
So how might diversity be relevant to you as a facilitator? And I was thinking about ways, I just was going to give a little bit of practical stuff about ways that you could work with it skillfully. And the first is, and, and I also want to acknowledge <clears throat> for some of you sitting here, this is something you think about all the time. This is something that you're trained in, that you maybe even teach others in. And so this may seem, you know, you know this. But, and for others, this may be relevant and new. Some of you may be really interested. Some of you may not. But I just want to offer it as uh, what I see is very important. So the four, four ways are educating, welcoming, not assuming, <clears throat> and the use of language. So educating yourself is about learning about it, making it a part of your life, study and practice through trainings, readings, and really simply deciding that it is important, if it is important to you. It's understanding that your own internalized racism, sexism, classism is actually, understanding it can be a mindfulness practice in and of itself. And that we can learn to see what's internalized in us with the lens of compassion and hold it with love and care And we can learn to not react out of habitual patterns. And this is whether we're facilitating or not facilitating. It's about holding it without beating ourselves up as well, but using the lens of mindfulness to understand this better. And it's also, in terms of education, it's about clarifying where you come from as a facilitator So that we all have a place of privilege and at the same time we have absence of privilege in certain ways. And the more that we can be conscious and not unconscious about it, um, the less we will act out out of our unseen privilege, unconscious privilege. So education is number one. Number two is welcoming, welcoming How we welcome people into what we facilitate is so extremely important. We can use welcoming language on the first day. I'd like to welcome people who come from a diversity of backgrounds, experiences, understanding, and your own wisdom. This kind of language is inviting, is welcoming. If we see a person who doesn't seem to fit in to the general field that we, that we have. Maybe the demographic is different. For instance, you're teaching a, cl- a class and it's mostly older people and you see a young person show up. We can connect with that person and say, I know you're the only young person here. How can I, you know, just, I just want you to know, I recognize it. I'm here. Support. Let me know. Because oftentimes when a person is, uh, the, a person can feel incredibly isolated. And so not only are they getting over the barriers of the suffering that they're just dealing with in general, they have that additional barrier of feeling different. So as much as you can be conscious of that and, and offer and provide a safe space is really, really key. Welcoming in terms of looking at issues of cost and access and scholarships, true scholarships for programs so that really people can come to it and disability access. I mean, there's so many pieces of accessibility, of welcoming with warmth into the communities that we create. Looking at the way we advertise ourselves and put out publications and what images are used and who they reflect. 
So educating yourself, welcoming. The third I have is not assuming, not assuming. Okay, we assume all the time. We assume all the time. And what's happening is in every room, there is seen diversity and there is unseen diversity, okay? And this room right here, fairly homogenous with some different age difference, some race difference, not, not huge, but there's a lot of unseen diversity that we have no idea. And so just going into a room that you teach knowing that there is the unseen diversity is very, very important. And so because of that, it's important that we're careful with the language that we use, that we don't make generalizations. So an example, a generalization might be something like, well, we all come from a good home or something like that. Well, that's not true. And I'm sure it's not true with everybody in this room. And so when we make these we statements without contemplating the possibility of who is out there, it can be very alienating. And again, it puts up barriers to learning and opening to the mindfulness teachings. So really, that's the essence, if I could just say it in a nutshell, that's the essence of why diversity is important with mindfulness. It's about not putting up any barriers to people learning to people showing up and being willing to open their heart and mind and learn. We have to be careful with genders. You know, there's, it's, things have shifted quite a bit. We ha- it's, sometimes it's appropriate to ask somebody, what pronoun do you prefer? You know, these are questions that we need to keep in our mind when we're, we're talking with, um, when we're meeting students. When we're working, many of you are, not many of you, some of you are working with um, with underserved populations. And so there's, that's a whole set of issues. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But one of the things, our assumptions, that we really need to check at the door is not assuming weakness, but actually assuming strength. That oftentimes we think, oh, we're, it, it, there can be these paternalistic models. The white hippie coming in to help the, you know, the, the poor such and such person. And it's, it's, it's not helpful. I always like the more, more the language of engaging with and that it's mutual learning and mutual sharing. It's not about my power imparting it to you. It's a mutual process. And if you can just hold that really lightly, just walk in holding that, it can be really helpful. The fourth is language. Langu- I'm saying languaging using quotes, telling stories from a variety of cultures and communities, not to appropriate these stories, but to help others feel like their experience is reflected. Really helpful. When working with underserved populations, and also let's just start here by saying not assuming because someone is of a different race that they are from an underserved population. Right away, look, checking the assumptions. But when you are, because many of you are working with underserved populations, um, there's different things we need to think about. So for instance, closing the eyes might be triggering for certain groups of people. It might be triggering for some people here in this room. People with a lot of trauma, it, uh, it can be triggering to meditate with your eyes closed. I, when Susan Kaiser Greenland, who's a colleague of my, mine, she teaches with children, she, oh, she never closes her eyes, 
And she always gives them the option, you can close your eyes, but I'll keep mine open so you can feel safe. So are there ways, things that we take for granted when we teach in certain settings are going to be really relevant in other settings? The lang- this is something that's come up a quite a bit on our retreat. The language of acceptance and non-identification might be very triggering um, in some communities, right? Where people are, are really in the midst of their personal suffering and their sorrow, and they don't want to start accepting. Are you kidding me? I'm not going to accept this terrible situation. And so to be sensitive to that, to... to First, recognizing the truth of the situation and having validation for you know, validating their experience, and then slowly introducing the concept of acceptance, but not to undermine or in any way cancel out the validation. I don't know if that's clear. Maybe it's a little vague, but I hope you get what I'm talking about. Also, linking in and weaving existing religious or spiritual views. So, okay, you may see this in your community. You may have this when you in your church, or this is one way of just making it more accessible, more understandable, so people feel included, respected, loved, seen for their power and strength and not for their lack. This is key. So with our language, there needs to be, there can be a sensitivity to being from one dominant culture and the way that it just automatically can exclude others. So we can begin to just attune into that. So this is, this is really all said to you in the spirit of, of not tying yourself up in knots about this, not beating yourself up, not to induce guilt and shame, but really to see it as a practice that's about compassion and inclusion and love and connection and interdependence. And that's the root in my mind of mindfulness in a secular world. Like we're doing this to connect so that people can open their hearts and find places of compassion inside us. And we don't, I don't want to see any barriers going up because there are enough barriers as it is. So let's not make extra, really. That's the idea of why this issue of diversity is so important. I'm just going to take a breath. Maybe just invite you all to do that as well. Talking about the issue of diversity can be charged and if there's something I left out that's really important or something I said that in any way was hard to hear or excluded in some way I just want to ask forgiveness because I'm learning here quite a bit too So let's return to the 12 myths of mindfulness. Number four, mindfulness is ethically neutral. 
It is not. Um, I think Mark talked about it quite a bit, and Cliff really had fun touching on this last night. And we talked about the issue with the, the critique from certain communities, usually the Buddhist communities, that mindfulness has become mic mindfulness, and that... Um, that what are we doing, bringing it to the military to create better killers and bringing it to schools to anesthetize children so they'll behave. And, uh, oh, there's a lot of critique. And, and, you know, I think lively discussion is a good thing, honestly. My experience is it tends to be the people who are critiquing tend to be the people who are not on the ground level doing the work and don't actually know. Um, it is a concern, and I don't, also don't want to don't want to disregard the concern, because uh, because especially after that Bloomberg article that we talked about, you can make a killing. I mean, I'm I, I feel like actually the jury is still out in the way about how it will be used in different corporate settings. I think it's being used in some beautiful ways to help transform individuals who are suffering, but it, there is a potential for using it to make a killing. So, um, so I just, I just think that again, it goes back to who we are as facilitators, the people that we're doing it, that are doing it, modeling integrity, and taking it, and and keep having ethics be a core piece of who we are, so that when we teach, we are just emanating this goodness, and that we have our expertise, and we go. So, those of you who are doing work in the corporate world, you know that world, and you also are so deeply linked to your practice that you're just embodying it. There is a story about um, when mindfulness was taught and Monsanto about a decade ago. I don't know if you know this. Um, what? Yeah, yeah. Were you part of? No, you weren't part of that. Just checking. <laughs> Just checking. <laughs> you weren't either. <laughs> Anybody? Um, and uh, you know, and of course, that a lot of people were, were were very disturbed. But what one of the things that came out of it was some of the main leadership stepped down and left the company after going through mindfulness training um, because they felt like their ethics were no longer aligned with what they were doing. So there is tremendous possibility for institutional change that can come through through mindfulness and it's also the reverse is possible too that it can cement making people you know better at uh harm it is possible i don't know it is possible Wow, so that's, that's amazing. So I'm just going to repeat that, that two of the people in the most recent DPP program at Spirit Rock were people who had been in the Monsanto program 10 years ago. That's amazing. That's amazing to hear. Which is a dedicated practitioner's program. Ah, a dedicated practitioner's program. Thank you. Yes. Okay. Um, one of the things that I've been doing, because just because I'm really interested in it, is trying to uh, create uh, a mindfulness. I'd be very explicit. Now I'm going to teach a class on mindfulness ethics. Now what did I do? I went straight over to Thich Nhat Hanh, stole shamelessly from him, 
and um, mostly taught it. But I know that I have the blessing of many people who say that's all up for grabs. It's all open source, <laughs> right? But but it. I know I shouldn't be talking about ethics and saying I steal, right? <laughs> that's a bad idea. I borrowed. And it was freely given, but but we can um, we can right now f- ethics are in in some programs it's talked about a little bit in some of the mindfulness programs. Most of the time, it's kind of implicit, and people are are living from the place of ethics. But I actually think it's time now to make it explicit. Here's what mindfulness ethics I call it: the mindfulness ethical trainings, the Mets, the M E T S, not the Red Sox, the Mets. Um, Okay, so number... Th- oh, I'm already down to three. Oh, good. All right, number three. Myth number three. Anyone can teach mindfulness. We know that's not true, right? We know we've talked about this significantly, and we know that in spite of... I've seen at least one weekend workshop offered where you get facilita- uh, certified as a facilitator. Um, we know that the depth of practice is what makes us uh, uh, that embodying our practice. It doesn't have to be very, very deep and long, but our embodying our practice is what makes us the best facilitators. So just want to use this opportunity to share that, that it's been very clear to me for a number of years that some kind of accreditation board or um, certification board needs to be developed because the mindfulness world, I like to call it the wild, wild west of mindfulness right now. Anybody can do it. Study mindfulness for a few hours and online, and then you can be a mindfulness teacher. So what I'm hoping to do and what I'm working on currently is the creation of standards for programs and for individuals and for CEU-type type, um programs so that people will um, so that people so that there will be some kind of standardization and that once you've gone through accredited programs you would get some things that would actually benefit you including some collegial relationships and also some uh, so, you know, support in various forms and then then there's more of a sense of of uh, more more professionalism of the field and so I'm in conversation with uh, pretty much most of the leaders of the mindfulness field who are all saying, great, go for it. John Kabat-Zinn recently said to me, he said, you know, when I first started this, I just let whoever teach because I figured it would all work itself out. And he was right, it did, you know, it mostly did. And he said, but that's not working anymore <laughs> because there's so much interest and and I was really one day reflecting. I said, why do so many people want to teach mindfulness? And I think the answer is really simple. Because they love it, right? You love it. Every person sitting in this room in some way loves it, and it has changed your life. And you know deep down inside that you want to then go out and share and offer and have people see how great it is. And and so there's nothing wrong with that impulse. I mean, we love it, and we want to bring our passion and our heart to it. Uh, and it can get, a, you know, in, there needs to be some help and support around um, ensuring quality. And also another piece to this ethics uh, to this board I'm talking about would be an ethics board, so that if there were grievances, they could be addressed. So anyway, that just to let you know, I'm in process with that right now. 
Okay. Number two. Mindfulness is just a technique for paying attention. This is related to the one about ethics. And I will say, yes, it is a technique for paying attention. And it's a whole lot more, of course. And, and I think the problem is, especially out in the media, it gets turned into it's just a technique for paying attention. And that's why people can critique it and say, oh, it's not ethical or, you know, it's just your, your um, anyway, it's not, it's just a technique. I had a moment of um, understanding when a student of mine called me up after she had sat her first retreat. And she said to me, I was experienced, I was on this retreat and I was having tremendous anxiety. And at a certain point, I realized I couldn't do mindfulness anymore. So instead, I shifted to loving kindness practice, and that helped me so much. But now I feel so guilty because I stopped doing mindfulness. And the fact is, well, you know, and of course I said to her that you were doing mindfulness. You were just doing this other, you weren't doing mindfulness in the narrowest definition of mindfulness. But when we begin to expand the definition of mindfulness, we realize that mindfulness could be a, co- a code word for the Dharma. It could be a code word for the Eightfold Path. That mindfulness is not about just how to pay attention. It is how to pay attention in the service of more compassion, a more ethical life, more wisdom. Those things are the core of what we are doing here. You are not teaching and practicing mindfulness just so you can notice your breathing. Right? And I think that's really important as this, this moves out into the culture that we see that for some people, mindfulness may just be a, te- may be a technique. You know, I, we, teach, uh, we teach a class called MAPS, Mindful Awareness Practices. It's equivalent in some ways. It's shorter, but it's equivalent to MBSR in, in that it's an introduction to mindfulness. After six weeks, people walk away and they have a good understanding of mindfulness. Thousands of people have taken that class. Of those thousands of people, how many of them have gone on to do deeper work? Mm, I don't know, but not a huge amount. I would say probably 70, 80% take the class and go home and go on with their lives. But they report back that it is transformative. And I think that one of the greatest things I've seen has been the way that people, or one of the key learnings that I see is that people change their relationship to their thoughts. And people don't believe their thoughts so much after going through a basic mindfulness class. And that is a life-changing thing. And so it's like, it's, it's like a paradigm shift happens. And what I've noticed, I, did, I was involved with a research study where um, we were teaching mindfulness to women, younger women who were survivors of breast cancer. And they, they, we finished the course and then decided a couple of years later to have a reunion to see where they were. This doesn't happen very often because usually if you teach a course and people don't come back, they don't come back. You never know what happens to them. Or they come back and you know exactly what happens to them because you keep working with them. So these were people who went away for about two years and then came back. And so the room was filled with a whole group of women. And we went around and said, how's your mindfulness practice now? 
I have to say, and although I was not surprised, but somewhat disappointed, that most of them weren't meditating any longer, two years later. However, they all reported that they feel like mindfulness is still an essential part of their lives, that they still see the world through the lens of mindfulness, that they still have more self-compassion. That was one of the key findings in the research study that's going to be published within, I don't know, the next six months. Um, And it was that self-compassion increased through the mindfulness practice. So their lives changed. And even if they don't go on to do more and more, that's okay. There's something essential that's shifted. And so I think of it like this big funnel. People come in at the top and there's a lot of people and those who want depth, they can get depth. But you, and, and sometimes depth means going to Buddhism. And sometimes we can get depth through just a continued secular practice or through another spiritual tradition. We've done a lot at UCLA of trying to create second level and third level and fourth level. What would you do next? What would you learn next? Let's do a class on the heart qualities. Let's do a class on the hindrances we call the obstacles. Let's do a class on working with strong emotions so that people can go in deeper when they wish so they can see more clearly that this is about personal transformation. It's not about paying attention, merely paying attention. So I will say that in the last 10 years of teaching mindfulness in the secular world, I never get to say the word Buddha and never for a moment have I felt like I wasn't teaching the Dharma. Okay. It is this, be- it is this incredible opportunity to take these practices out of the Buddhist context and share them with the larger culture. That's what the gift of what you're doing is. People are going to the things you're doing because they, and may not ever have been attracted to a Buddhist setting because it is so accessible, because it is so open and fresh and available and talk in the most common language possible. Just, you know, the Buddha said, teach in the idiom of the people, right? So it's not separate. That's why I said maybe the word mindfulness is a code word for the Eightfold Path or the Dharma itself. All right, number one, I made it. Mindfulness. All right, here we go. Do I get one of those? (laughs) Drum roll, drum roll. Okay, I got drum roll. Awesome. (laughs) But I lost my page. Okay. The number one myth, this, is not, this one's not a joke. You would think a good joke would come, but it's not. It's real. Um, the number one myth of the, of the mindfulness movement is mindfulness and teaching mindfulness is self-indulgent, self-absorbed navel-gazing. <laughs> nope. It's profoundly situated within a larger context of cultural change. That as individuals transform, this transforms relationships, and relationships transform our professional lives, and it transforms workplaces and institutions and neighborhoods and communities and societies. So... What we're doing here is revolutionary. It is not self-absorbed. It is 
such a powerful practice that has the potential for truly making great change in this planet. That institutions, the fact that that hospitals are eating up MBSR right now. Come on in, do it, do it. This is, inc- this is amazing. Eating it up meaning loving it, right? That they're, one of my students has just gotten um, her giant healthcare organization to pay, um, to have people for their health insurance plan get a reduction in rates if they take mindfulness courses. This is the future. This is what's going to happen more and more. That it's going into schools in this way. It's transforming, it's impacting and transforming education. Mindfulness, I mean, it's just, it's just so amazing to think that this little idea, that of course is an idea that's been around for thousands of years, that's been practiced and tried and true, can make such an impact in the world. A few months ago, I saw Sharon Salzberg, and we were talking about everything, and she said, she said, mindfulness is this, everything that's happening in mindfulness. I can't believe what's happened in my lifetime because she's been doing it for 40 years, right? And then she says, I think it's great. She said, but it's not going to change the world. And I said, yes, it is. It is going to change the world. So I had to respectfully disagree with her because I just, it's not the only thing that will change the world, let's be clear. But I think that Everything begins with awareness, right? There is no change possible without awareness. And this is what we're doing. This is what we're facilitating, teaching, sharing, and cultivating in ourselves: Awareness. And out of the seed awareness, the world can change. So let's just take a moment. Let's feel our bodies present. Notice what's happening inside you. And notice what is your vision for bringing mindfulness into the world. Take a moment to let that unfold in some way for you. How do you see yourself being part of this mindfulness movement? Maybe it's what you're doing now, but maybe just imagine it expanded a little bit. Imagine five years, what that looks like. How do you see yourself? What do you see yourself doing? What kind of support do you have? What is your life like? Just see what comes to mind. And now imagine it bigger. What would that look like? And now even bigger. And notice what you're feeling inside. 
And we remember that we do this in the spirit of serving and waking up, helping others to wake up for the benefit of all beings. Walking practice, and then your meditation at nine. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.